Thank you so much for being here uh, this evening. I think it's a wonderful thing that as we uh, ever approach closer the Feast of All Saints Day that we can actually uh, meditate on one of our own American saints, of course, uh, recently canonized. Um, a couple of, of housekeeping things. There is a book about uh, Father Stanley Rother that is available. Celtic Cross is in the center part of the narthex today called The Shepherd Who Didn't Run. Father Wolf says that's not a great title, but, uh, he's, but he'll explain that on, on his own, but it is a great book. Um, so there are, he, she has 25 copies in the narthex and a, a collection of other books and religious materials if you should like uh, to pick one up. At the end of uh, Father Wolf's presentation this evening, uh, we will bless the, um, uh, the medals that you received when you came in today. There will be a, a collection uh, to offset uh, the expenses. Uh, and this uh, uh, talk this evening is sponsored by our Gospel of Life Committee here at Our Lady of Mount Carmel that seeks to do all kinds of life-affirming uh, talks and uh, activities uh, in the life of our parish. So, uh, I had the privilege of he hearing Father Wolf uh, give this talk in, at the National Federation of Priests in Chicago last spring. He was by far the best speaker that we heard uh, throughout that whole uh, event. And he's talked this morning to all the priests of our diocese. Father Wolf has been a priest for 37 years. He graduated from St. Meinrich Seminary in southern uh, Indiana. He is the pastor of St. Eugene's, right? In the Archdiocese of Oklahoma City, and he is Father Rother's second cousin. And he, I, th I thought it was his first cousin, but it is second cousin. Uh, and he will uh, share more uh, about that this evening. So without further ado, uh, Father Wolf. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here back in Indiana. Uh, as um, just said, let me get my things here. I'm Father Stan Rother's second cousin. His grandfather and my grandfather were brothers. Uh, my mother uh, was a Rother from Okarchi, Oklahoma. The farm she grew up on bordered the farm that uh, Father Stan grew up on. And Father Stanley's mother and father were part of this gigantic clan that I'm a part of from a town just west of Oklahoma City. So I spent a little time talking about Oklahoma and a little time talking about Stan and his vocation and then some time talking about the circumstances in Guatemala that led to his martyrdom and then a few minutes of reflection about what it is that somebody born in 1935, murdered in 1981, what his life speaks uh, to us about with regard to service, about our own vocations and what it means to uh, serve the Lord faithfully. Oklahoma was open to white settlement in 1889, a big land run there at the end of April in 1889. Oklahoma was originally set aside to the, the original place to move the Native American tribes as they were displaced by white settlement. The five civilized tribes were moved from the southeast into Oklahoma in the middle 1800s. Uh, it has the collective name Tsalagi, that's Cherokee for the Trail of Tears as they left their homeland behind and moved into Oklahoma. That original Bantustan, this place reserved for native occupation, lasted until a Supreme Court decision in 1889 that opened the land to white settlement. 
1892, areas that we reserved for the Comanche and the Cheyenne uh, tribes just west of Oklahoma City was open for settlement and there was a large land run there. Many of the settlers went ahead, claimed the land, stayed the minimum amount of time, and then sold it. And they sold the land to a large number of Germans who came down from Minnesota and or from Germany. My mother's family, the Rothers, moved down from Minnesota. Her mother's family moved directly from Germany and occupied uh, land there. Rother is a, a German name, of course comes from Silesia, which is now southern Poland. Uh, the town that my ancestors came from was called Neuwald when they were there, the New Forest. It's now called Novilas in Polish. It means the New Forest. They came, occupied the place, and began to build this little town there, the most Catholic town in all of Oklahoma. It comes from the uh, uh, acronym of the initials Oklahoma, Arapaho, Cheyenne, two Indian tribes. Oklahoma is a word in Choctaw that means the, la the land of the red man, Oklahoma. They were prosper. They were Germans who came and occupied. They um, worked hard, farmed, and raised their own help. And, uh, in the frontier times were very dedicated to the faith, while most of them in, with very large families lived in dugouts to the west of the town. In creek banks, they built a very beautiful and very large church there in town. Oklahoma, for, until the arrival of the Mexicans in uh, the late 1970s and early 1980s, was steadily between two and three percent Catholic. It was that way all the time I was growing up. It's only been with the arrival of the Hispanic population that's changed the equation quite a lot in Oklahoma. And so in a, town, in a, in a state of three percent Catholics, Okarchi was very much Catholic. In a town of 800 people, the, there were three grade schools the Lutheran school, the Catholic school, and the public school. The public school was the smallest one. They had two high schools until 1975. The Catholic high school was the largest until it closed in 1975. A very Catholic town. It was where Stanley Rother was born in 1935. His uh, parents, Franz and Gertrude, uh, were married in 1933. 1935, they had their first child, Stanley followed very quickly within five years by four more, a rather typical pattern of the time. A typical pattern of the time as well was that his youngest sister died in the infancy. Uh, so four children uh, in just a few years. Stanley being the oldest assumed a lot of responsibility from the family as he grew up, as was common in his time, with his father on the farm he was entrusted with lots of responsibility early on and became one of those men of his time who was really, really good with his hands. He was, uh, from, from the earliest memory, a very, very capable mechanic like his father was, a, a capable carpenter, a mason, an electrician, the kind of guy who could make things happen and work with his hands. He went to the Catholic grade school, went off to the Catholic high school, when he graduated from high school, he came home and announced to his parents that he wanted to, to go to the seminary to become a priest. 
Now, in the late 1950s, this was not an unusual thing among uh, boys at rural Catholic high schools, but uh, Stanley had not taken any of the precautions about being ready to go to the seminary, had studied vocational agriculture, not Latin. Of course, his youngest brother studied Latin all through high school. He's the one who became the farmer. Stanley is the one who went off to the seminary to become the priest, wouldn't you know? But he, he was singularly unprepared as he headed off to his studies at the seminary. Now, all through the seminary, he had a lot of difficulty with Latin. He had to study most of his philosophy in Latin and almost all of his theology, and it was difficult for him. Although the priest, I know, assured me that he was certainly not the only one who struggled with Latin. At my first priest council meeting, uh, when I was first ordained, my childhood pastor was there, Father Phil Wilkemeyer. Phil had been ordained in 1908. Somehow we got on this topic of mass in English, and he said, oh my God, it was the greatest thing that ever happened. I never understood a single word of Latin that I ever said, he said, ordained in 1948. My older friends say his profession of ignorance was somewhat overblown, but he was, Father Stanley was not the only guy in the seminary to have trouble with Latin. But he did have trouble with it. He, went, he finished college and began theology at the seminary in San Antonio, but after first theology, he failed, and they asked him to leave. It was a devastating thing for him because he had just been holding on with his fingernails through this entire time. He knew he wasn't any good at Latin, and he knew that this was a, a, a great difficulty. His friend, Father Sam Levin, eventually, at that time a seminarian just older than Stan, went to the bishop and asked that the bishop reconsider and find a place for Stan because his vocation was genuine. Sam also said that Stan, being like most of us, really concentrated on the things that he was good at and stay, stayed away from the things he wasn't good at. What he was good at was taking care of the buildings, repairing the roof, working on the air conditioning system, and making sure he could repair the lawn mowers so that the lawn could get mowed. The thing he wasn't interested in was studying. So he didn't. He eventually failed. The bishop asked him to uh, spend some time in retreat, so he did part of that summer. And the bishop secured a place for him at Mount St. Mary's Seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland. And so Stan began sec, uh, first theology again at Mount St. Mary's at Emmitsburg. Probably the best thing for him, he had spent all five of those years at the seminary in San Antonio. Uh, and you may have noticed that once you get a reputation, it's pretty hard to overcome the reputation no matter what. It's especially true if you're a cleric or preparing to be a cleric. I don't know if you know priests very well, at least in my diocese. It's probably not the same here. In my diocese, once you get a reputation, it never changes. It, it never changes. So you can have a reputation for being really, really good with money and bankrupt parish after parish. Your reputation never changes. You can be, have a reputation for being completely disinterested and no good at finances and rescue parish after parish never changes. If you have a reputation for not being very good at things, that never changes either. So he went to Mount St. Mary's, a whole new place. He was the only Oklahoman there. He finished his studies and was ordained in 1960, uh, 1963, at age 28, somewhat older than most of the guys 
who went to the seminary right out of high school. When he was ordained in 1963, of course, was the beginning of when things began to change a lot. He was assigned as a response to many of the changes going on. So moved from parish to parish pretty rapidly the first five years of his ordination. Beginning in 1964 until 1975, so those 11 years, one-third of all the priests in Oklahoma left to marry. One-third. Interestingly, there was no priest who left the priesthood to marry for 21 years after those 11 years. But during those 11 years, it was a hemorrhage out the door. And Stan was moved around in response to those changes. But he had the reputation for not being very flashy. Everyone at that time put a premium on what was happening that was new and that was interesting. The people who read and kept up with things, who were really, really sharp, and who were really good at convincing and responding to what was going on. And Stan was not one of those guys. And so he was moved around on the chessboard of diocesan assignments to respond to other needs when guys had left or where they needed a steady hand or since he had a reputation for not being very good at priestly things he was assigned for two years to southeastern Oklahoma so the whole state was three percent Catholic southeastern Oklahoma was about one half of one percent Catholic but he was assigned there so that he could go to the lake and build cabins for the archbishop because the bishop had decided that would be a great place to have uh, cabins for priests and, and priest meetings. So Stan did that for two years. He's a really good carpenter, a good plumber, and a really decent electrician. That's what he did for two years. In 1968, he asked to be sent to our parish mission in Santiago Atitlan, Guatemala. Now, this was an enormous moment for the church in Oklahoma when it could respond to Pope John XXIII's request that North America aid the church in Latin America, in, in Central America and South America. The St. James Society was established uh, out of the Archdiocese of Boston as those American priests who would respond to the, the ministerial needs in Latin America. And there were a large number. It was, uh, North America had enjoyed enormous wealth and growth in North American church. And especially beginning in the post-war years, there was an enormous boom in vocations that occasioned those men coming back from, uh, from the military service. And so in Oklahoma, we went from something like 15 seminarians in 1943 to more than 120 by 1950. And seminaries were bursting at the seams and dioceses had priests all over. They had, they had resources and they had personnel that would, they were willing to send to Latin America. So in 1963, in responding to Pope John XXIII's invitation, Oklahoma, being led by uh, Ramon Carlin, priest of the, Arch of the Diocese of Oklahoma City in Tulsa, uh, uh, formed a group to go down to, uh, to Guatemala. He had fallen in love with Guatemala and 
the bishop and several of his representatives had negotiated a place for the Oklahomans to, uh, to, to respond to John XXIII's invitation. At first, they settled on a place on the west coast of Guatemala that had two major disadvantages. Uh, Father Carlin was rotund, and uh, he, when he arrived, found that the parish was on the coast where it was hot all year long, and it was uh, below the mosquito line. He didn't like it there very much. So after a very brief time there, they renegotiated, and Oklahoma ended up in the Mayan highlands around Lago Atitlan, above the mosquito line, where it was temperate. The temperatures are very nice all year long. A beautiful place, one of the most beautiful lakes in all of Central America. This aquamarine water, uh, deep volcanic lake, and around it a whole series of villages and uh, volcanoes. If you stand at the front door of the rectory in Santiago Atitlan and look across the plaza and then look across the lake, there is a gigantic volcano that's right there that looks like a volcano. You know, the, the, the large hill with a little dip on the top. It's just amazing, and it's right there. If you look behind you, there's another one over here and another one over there. It's really an astounding vision, amazing beauty. The Oklahomans arrived there with this can-do Yankee attitude that they were going to set things right. Now, Guatemala has had a very intricate history especially as, an, as it has existed first as a province of the Spanish occupation but of, the, of New Spain, but also a very intricate history uh, following its independence. And for several generations before the arrival of the Oklahomans, they had adopted a very anti-clerical constitution because the government wanted to become a government that was forthright and of the people and they defined that at that time as being against the church and so for a very long time it was against the Constitution to receive money from the outside for the church or in fact even to repair church property so for a hundred years the church in Guatemala had fallen into dire disrepair and when Spain after the Declaration of Independence from, by Guatemala and indeed of all the Central American countries, when Spain pulled out its priests, the entire country of Guatemala was left with something like 30 priests. An entire country with 30 priests. Santiago, when the Oklahomans got there, was a place that had not had a pastor for a hundred years. And it was... Uh, a place that had suffered a lot because of that, uh, the abandonment of the, um, uh, of the clerical presence there. Interesting fact is that Santiago uh, Atitlan, the, 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 the people there were called the Tsutuhil Mayans, and they had been defeated by Sp the Spanish soldiers and their Cacchiquel allies, the other group of Mayans who lived around the lake and they had they had uh, been isolated pretty much to this one bank of the uh, 
of the, the, the uh, lake in, uh, of Lake Atitlan. But, and the church that's currently present there, the church that you see if you look on the website, the church that Stanley Rother um, ministered in was, um, was built in 1597. It was first staffed by the Franciscans and then later by the Dominicans. So 40 years before the pilgrims got to Plymouth Rock, in Santiago Atitlan, there was a Dominican school for lay ministry, a Dominican school for evangelization, and a Dominican uh, translation effort that was going on in that village. Uh, the Hispanic evangelization of the New World was the most successful evangelization in the history of Christianity so far. But when Spain pulled back and its resources were limited, it left the country of Guatemala and the church there bereft. Plus the anti-clerical constitution put the government officially at odds with the church. And so the people and their relationship to the church suffered a great deal. That changed just about the time that the Oklahomans arrived, a little before that, really in the, just about a decade before that, so that when the Oklahomans got there, they could receive money from outside the country for the church. They could begin the kind of church rebuilding process, both with regard to the actual physical buildings as well as the um, personnel that they brought. So the Oklahomans arrived in 1965. They came with three priests from the diocese, uh, another priest, uh, two religious priests, one who was a linguist, another who was an anthropologist. They came with a group of papal volunteers as well as a group of uh, lay volunteers from, the, from Oklahoma. This giant team of people. They set up a translation uh, service, a nutrition uh, office, a liturgical office, and an evangelization office, a really pastoral ministry office. The first Sunday that the Oklahomans were there, they said Mass for the first time, and there were three people there, three people in church. They'd gone for a hundred years without having Mass regularly. So when they rang the bell on Sunday morning for Mass, three people showed up. They tell a great story as they were in the middle of Mass, two women and one man. One of the chickens walked in the Mass. It came down the aisle. And so the priest was looking at this chicken coming down the aisle. The man reached up, grabbed the chicken, and threw it out the window. <laughs> we know how to take care of the church here. Don't worry about it. Malnutrition was everywhere. You know, parasites, uh, the median age was somewhere in the 50s. It was astounding. All of that compounded by the fact that they lived under a dire, oppressive system in which most of them uh, didn't have land and most of them spent at least part of the year as workers on plantations, both up on the volcano where they worked in large plantations that raised spices, as well as in the banana plantations down on the coasts. The Oklahomans arrived with this conviction that they could make things different. 1967, 68, Stanley volunteered and was sent to Guatemala as the one component of the team that they didn't have. 
that all these guys who had gone down, especially Ramon Carlin. Ramon Carlin was the kind of guy who had 20 new ideas every day. 18 of them were crazy, but two of them were things that nobody had ever thought of before ever. I think it was uh, a guy named Ismay, who was a, uh, uh, the, uh, the, um, uh, the liaison between the British Army and Winston Churchill during the Second World War. And when asked what his job was, he said, my job is to protect the army from Winston Churchill. Because Churchill would have 20 new ideas every day, 18 of which were crazy, and two of which were brilliant. That's how Ramon Carlin was. He was the kind of guy who would think of 100 things a week that they could do. And he was surrounded by guys who were dedicated and smart, but one of the things that they couldn't do was to keep things going. So Stan went down as the guy who could put new brake shoes on the, on the, van, on the uh, pickup, who could uh, make sure that the generator worked, who could rewire the rectory or build a new outbuilding out of stone. Stanley was the kind of guy who could take care of things. He arrived in 1968. By 1972, he was the only priest left there. All the other priests left. Ramon Carlin came back home so broken that he couldn't serve in any real capacity. All the others left the priesthood. They found the work in Guatemala to be distressing, being surrounded by poverty and oppression and, and the difficulty of responding sapped the life out of many of them. We, they found it to be very discouraging. It left Stanley there by himself. By 1972, by 1975, he had been named the pastor. Now, he did have one advantage. Actually, he had two advantages. The first was this. He came from Okarchi, this tiny little German outpost in uh, Protestant Oklahoma, where people still spoke German when he was growing up. My uncle is 10 years younger than Stanley, and he didn't speak German when he, he didn't speak English when he started school. He had to learn from the nuns at the school who all spoke German. He had to learn from them how to speak English. He didn't learn at home. They only spoke German at home. My mother didn't speak English till she was about 10. So Stanley grew up in a world that was Catholic, spoke a different language than all the people around them, thought they were, they were, uh, uh, isolated and insulated and better than anybody else and uh, identified the church as the center of their life. Stanley got down to Guatemala and he found a people who spoke a language completely different than everybody else, who thought they were better than anybody else, who was fractious and couldn't get along with anybody and who, for whom the church was the center of their lives. He just got to Okarchi all over again. And the second thing was that by 1975, Stanley had learned the native language. It's a Mayan language. When people speak it, it sounds like Klingon. It's a very difficult language to, for an Anglo to speak, and Stanley learned it. He also learned Spanish, which is an accomplishment for a guy who got kicked out of the seminary for being no good at languages. He became the trilingual pastor of a parish of 30,000 people. So by 1975, Stanley was there alone, 
trying to meet the needs of 30,000 people in his parish by himself. Quite a change from, the, um, from the, the dreams of those who had come there in order to solve the problems of the people there. Now, along with that, along with being there, and along with all the concerns of the church in Guatemala, there were other things going on as well. Now, part of this, of the difficulty with the Tsutuhil people and their isolation was that uh, they, were, they were quite distinct. Partly it was language and culture, partly that, that separated them, and that, that sense of, of being in that town and being isolated from everyone else. This was especially a problem with the women who, you know, who, who never were out and about around you know, to learn Spanish. The men who had to trade often spoke at least some Spanish, but the women almost never. Even when I started to go to Guatemala, beginning in, um, regularly in 1985, was overthrown by communist insurgents, and uh, the, uh, the Somoza government was uh, uh, kicked out, and the uh, Sandinista government took power. That began to shake everyone in Washington during the Carter administration into the Reagan administration. Everybody was terrified that somehow Latin America, Central America, which had been our, in our back pocket, would somehow become hostile to the United States. And so a lot of money and a lot of support, both overt and covert, was directed toward Guatemala. And a place like Santiago Atitlan, because it was isolated, because it was intact, these people who know each other, they're all related to each other, there are 30,000, they speak a separate language, became a prime recruiting target. Plus, they're poor, oppressed, miserable, and they live in dire circumstances. And this would be a perfect place as a kind of guerrilla subversion base in Guatemala. And so in order to forestall that, the army, the Guatemalan army, occupied Santiago Atitlan beginning in 1979 and began their anti-insurgency measures, which included kidnapping, sequestration, torture to death, and murder. That began to happen almost immediately upon the army's arrival. Um, it was a a dire day in Santiago as all of this began to happen. Of course, that kind of thing creates intimidate. It's intimidating. It creates intimidation. And it brings out the worst in every population. Stanley often talked about the ratones, the rats that would rat other people out. So if you have people who are quick to haul somebody away because they're ex they're, they suspect him to be a communist. It doesn't take long before your brother-in-law, who thinks you cheated him out of $20, tells the army that my brother-in-law is a communist, and they haul the guy away and kill him. That happened a lot. Uh, it was the kind of time where, of course, when you move into a village like this, where everyone knows everything about everybody, uh, and you don't know anything, the first response is to react. And there's no downside to being wrong. 
The only downside is if you don't respond soon enough or if you let something go. So for example, the Oklahomans had arrived and had established a weaving co-op. It was a place where the folks in Santiago, men and women, were famous for their weavings. So they would weave and, and sell their textiles for pennies and the brokers would take them to Guatemala City or to other places and sell them for $50. The, this Oklahomans decided that, that the people who actually make these things should get the benefit of their labor. So they established a co-op so that the people who actually wove could realize the benefits. And that would be money for the whole village, which would be good for everybody. Now, the weaving co-op was all these people doing this together, but the Oklahomans also built a kind of shed where they could go and sit and weave out of the, the, the sun and the, wind and the rain. The army's presence in Santiago Atitlan killed everyone involved in the weaving co-op, women and men, killed everybody. It was a threat to them. They could get together. Who knows what they talked about and what they planned at the weaving co-op. They killed everybody. They kidnapped people and tortured them to death. Uh, Father Pedro Bosell from Guatemala, who worked in our diocese for some time, he was Stan's associate. Uh, he told me one time, we were working together at the Curcio, he said, uh, you know, uh, during the torture, they would take a pin and stick it in somebody's eye. Of course, that blinds a person the first time you do it. But he said they wouldn't do it just once. They'd do it a hundred times. So that you found a body of someone tortured and, and their eyes were just pulped. Tortured people to death. We'd grab people off the street, take them away, and their bodies would be found at dumps and morgues and on the side of the road. In fact, Stanley took to going to find the bodies of those who had been taken. After all, if your brother or your son or your father is taken, the last thing you want to do is to appear at the police station or at the army barracks and say, he's my brother, he's my son, he's my husband. So Stan, who didn't have those connections, would go in search of the bodies. The low point for Stan was when the head catechist, Diego Keek, a father of five children was kidnapped by army uh, personnel off the front steps of the rectory. He had locked his hands around the pole so that they, and they, they drug him away, beating his hands with their rifle butts. He was screaming. Stan came from the back end of the compound just in time to see them drive him away in a jeep. Stan found his body three days later. So shredded by torture, he was almost unrecognizable. More than 100 people in the village, more than 100 people in the parish were taken like that. Uh, it was a terrible time. So in 1980, Stanley came home to, to Oklahoma for our regular clergy days. He hadn't been home in a couple of years. So I was ordained a deacon that year and went to clergy days for the first time. So Stan and I went out to one of our cousins. It would be my aunt, his cousin. Um, we went out to her house for supper. So we were driving, and Stan was talking about life in Guatemala. 
And he said, you know, uh, they, they, they kidnap people and torture them. He said, now, if they ever come for me, um, they'll never get me out of the rectory alive. Now, we're just driving down this little dirt road in Oklahoma going to eat at my aunt's house. And he's talking about what it takes to be the pastor in Santiago Atitlan. If they come for me, they'll never get me out of the house alive. This is the June of 1980. This is just one year after the government, after the soldiers occupied the village. But that kind of murder, kidnapping, torture was a regular feature of his life there. Now in 1981, in February, he received a message from a friend of his, a Benedictine priest from the United States, who was at the Benedictine Monastery across the lake in Solola, passed on a message that he had received. Pat had lots of friends in Guatemala City, and Pat said that uh, Stan's name was on, a, uh, was on a death list, a list of those to be, uh, to be killed. A regular feature of counterinsurgency things, after all, it's very intimidating to, uh, to know that you're on the next list. And so Pat traveled over to tell Stan that. That day, uh, Stan got his newly ordained Guatemalan associate, Pedro Bosel, and they left to go to Guatemala City then. Now, you can't drive from Santiago Atitlan and leave in the, in the afternoon and make it by sunset in February. And so on the way, and you can't, no one would drive at night. I mean, it's not even safe to do that now, much less then. But, um, so they stopped at a hotel. It's a little motel, actually. There was the, the Guatemalan tourist infrastructure was really pretty well developed. Of course, it was practically zero during the course of the Civil War. But there were a number of places, and they stopped at a motel on the way. So when they went in to check in, the man behind the counter wrote their name down on the registry, and he wrote the number of their room down, and he turned around and gave them another key, not the key to the room that he had put on the register. Stan and Pedro go to the room, and about 40 minutes later, two jeeps full of guys arrive, and they all get out. They're all armed. They go to the office, and then they go to the room written down in the registry and kick the door open. Stan and Pedro watch this from across the plaza. Now, it's a big motel. They can't kick every door open, so they get up and leave. Stanley was 40 minutes away from being taken that day. They drive into Guatemala City the next day. They went to the safe house, which is probably the Mary Knoll house there, where they, they stayed for five days until Stanley could get a visa for Pedro to get into the United States. Got on the plane, flew home. It's February of 1981. Stan arrived in the middle of the winter time in shirt sleeves because he hadn't taken anything with him. Arrived there because of the danger in Santiago. He uh, spent several months there, about 90 days, almost three months, and he determined to go back to Guatemala when it was safer. And he finally determined that it was safer, and he went back in time for Holy Week the apex of Guatemalan life. Today, even today, 
Holy Week is a combination of uh, Christmas, Thanksgiving, Super Bowl Sunday, Fourth uh, of July, Labor Day, and uh, I don't know, New Year's. It, it's, I mean, a time. And Stan came back in time for Holy Week. Pedro stayed behind. In fact, he stayed in Oklahoma for seven years after that. Stan had determined that things were safer there. That was in April. In May, he came back to Oklahoma, and that was for my ordination, May the 16th, 1981. Following his time in Oklahoma, he went up to visit again at Mount St. Mary's in Emmitsburg Seminary. And uh, he visited with, his, uh, with the rector there, his classmate, uh, Monsignor Flynn, who became Bishop, Archbishop Harry Flynn of Minneapolis. Um, and he shared his concerns with him. If I go back, my life is in danger. But if I stay home, I abandon my people in their greatest need. And he hadn't decided what to do yet. Eventually, after his time at the Mount, he decided to go back. He spent four or five days there. He went back. And uh, on July the 25th, the feast of St. James, Santiago, they had a big parish carnival. So even in the middle of a civil war, even in the middle of dire poverty, there's, there's time for carnival. Uh, and they, the sisters who had come to work there, the Carmelite missionary sisters of St. Teresa, Carmelitas Misioneras de Santa Teresa, had come to work there, and they had organized a blood drive. And um, at the end of the day, they were, they were happy that the blood drive had been so successful. And so sitting at, the, at supper that night, they began to, to talk about that, and they connected the obvious, which is bloodshed, more than 100 people in the parish who had been murdered and blood given. And one of the sisters, Sister Maria, turned to Stan and said, Father, if they come for you, if it's time for your blood to be shed, what do we do? And Stan said, um, if they come for me, go to the church, light the Easter candle, sing resurrection songs, 25th of, Ju of July. Now, just before Stan left um, to go back to Guatemala for Holy Week, he had gone to the largest parish in the diocese, uh, whose pastor was his friend, Sam Levin. And the, they wanted him to speak about what was going on in Latin America. After all, in 1980 was when Monsignor Romero, Archbishop Romero, was killed. It was, 1980 was also when the five religious women were killed on the road from the airport to the, to the, to the capital in Salvador. And it was on the news everywhere all the time. And, of course, Stan was, was home because of these threats. And so he spoke at the parish. What's going on in Latin America, Central America? What's going on in Guatemala? And he made two points. One is he said no one in Okarchi would, would endure the poverty and the, the injustice that the people in Santiago have to put up with every day. No one in Okarchi would endure it for an hour. The second thing he said was, and things have to change. They can't stay the same. Now, he said, violence 
only leads to more violence. So violent change is not the way to make this happen, but things have to change. Two men at the largest parish in Oklahoma, each that day wrote letters, sent a copy to the archbishop, denouncing him as a communist, not worthy to be a priest, and somebody who had to be stopped. And they sent the letters to the Guatemalan embassy. Neither of them had ever been to Guatemala. I doubt if either of them had ever been out of the country. They hadn't gone around to pick up the bodies of their parishioners that had been tortured to death by the occupying army in the town. They hadn't watched 40% infant mortality and, and gross malnutrition. They hadn't watched babies die by the hundreds of measles. They were convinced Stanley was a communist, had to be stopped. On the morning of July the 28th, one o'clock in the morning, three men entered the rectory and went upstairs to Stan's room. His room was uh, on the, uh, just outside of the porch facing the plaza. They went into the room and they didn't find him in bed there. They found in bed instead a young Guatemalan man. Turns out it's the brother of Father Pedro Bosel who had asked to come and stay in the rectory, figuring it was a safer place than staying out in the village. He, he, he'd chosen poorly. They put a gun to his temple and said, tell us where the priest is. So he took them downstairs. They probably had actually walked past Stan's door on their way up the stairs in the rectory. And so they said, tell him that there's a bomb in the house. Now, Guatemalans, Guatemalan Mayans don't like to be told what to say or do. And he said, Father, they've come for you. Stan had uh, a person that, um, uh, an American woman from Wichita visiting. She had come to, uh, she was a retired nurse and had come to staff the, uh, the, the health center there. She would, she would come down for a couple of months at a time. She was there for the Feast of St. James. And she was there with the other sisters in the other part of the compound. And these men had Pedro's brother already. All that in mind, I think, Stan unlocked the door and they rushed in and slammed the door behind them. There was a, a, a struggle which leads everyone to think that Stan, that they, what they wanted to do was to kidnap him, to take him. Uh, as the pastor of this parish where he spoke the language and knew the people, he knew the kinds of things the army wanted to know. But they struggled long enough that eventually they shot him. Once in the chest, once in the head. So another shot apparently that missed, uh, gouged out a big hole on the floor tile. And after they shot him, they opened the door and walked away into the dark. 
They had no more concern about what they had done than carpenters leaving their sawhorses behind at the end of the day. They simply had done what they had come to do. Now, the town was under martial law. It was controlled by the army. No one could move in town after dark without the threat of being arrested or shot. And these guys walked away into the dark. The sisters rushed in when they heard the shots, but there was no, no telephone in the town. They had to wait until sunup, got on the bus to go to the neighboring town. One of the sisters went down to the, to the uh, lake, took the boat across the lake uh, to eventually to the bishop's house. That took a couple of hours, and uh, the word eventually got out. The people in the morning when they heard that Stanley had been murdered came into the church and stood out in the plaza, just stunned. Those who were there said it was eerie that thousands of people stood in the plaza, quiet. Of course, there was nothing to say, nothing to say. There was a man who arrived from the American embassy that day, later in the afternoon, who incongruously said it was if their God had died. The priest came from the neighboring village, had mass that day. They began the process of trying to determine what to do next with the body, which in a tropical country is an immediate concern. His parents wanted his body taken back to Okarchi. And so they, in the course of doing the autopsy that's required for shipping the body back, they removed his heart and they determined to leave his heart in Santiago. And so there are several pictures that you can see. It's part of the, the online thing that you can look up. Um, there are, um, the, 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 at the funeral that was celebrated by the bishop from Guatemala, there's a, a wooden box that holds his heart and a couple of mayonnaise jars full of his blood from the embalming that's sitting on the altar at the funeral. They eventually interred the heart behind the altar, put a monument over it with the the heart and the blood. Shipped his body back to Oklahoma and uh, had a funeral at the cathedral and then we went back to Okarchi where he was buried. Now, what what does it mean? First of all, the question is who killed him? And um, of course, no one knows. Those who know most say unknown assailants. Of course, since it was under martial law, the town, and uh, these men simply came in and shot him and walked away, almost certainly it was the army. But whether it was the initiative of the local commander, whether it was uh, somehow something agreed upon, whether it was they had intended to take him and kidnap him, you know, uh, or they had intended to kill him, nobody knows for sure. My opinion, it was planned all along, planned with the knowledge of those that uh, communicated with people back and forth in the United States. It's inconceivable to me that the Guatemalan army that received $50 million a year in assistance from the United States would kill a U.S. citizen without clearing it with somebody. 
the history of involvement by the United States in Guatemalan affairs is despicable. I think Stanley, who was killed by an American gun with an American bullet by members of an army supported and paid for by the United States, Stanley's death was the byproduct of a proxy war. That's who I think killed Stanley. Um, but what does it mean? First of all, Stanley was always on the sidelines in Oklahoma. He wasn't very smart. He wasn't very voluble. Uh, when the guys were out on the field playing in life, Stanley was deep on the bench. But when he got to Guatemala, he was at the center of things. And Guatemala, the highlands of Guatemala, which had been a backwater for hundreds of years in the Brezhnev and Reagan administration, became the front lines of the superpowers. Everybody from Moscow to Washington was concerned about what, on, what went on in the highlands of Guatemala. Wouldn't you know, this saintly man, who had always been on the sidelines, was at the center of where the worlds collided in that place and at that time. Something about sanctity that does that. Second thing is that Stanley's life was marked by sacrifice. His willingness to, to give his life away in service. Now we focus on the sacrifice of his blood which, of course, sets him apart as a martyr. But, you know, the original meaning of the word martyr in Greek simply means witness, one who testifies. His witness first started in his willingness to serve. It was his, his life was given away first in service and then in blood. But it began on the day he was ordained and entrusted his life to the life of service in the church. I think that more than anything else, that his willingness to submit himself to the demands of that kind of service was what marked his life and marked his relationship to us. After all, all of us are called to serve, each of us in a different way. But his service began with his willingness to, to, to submit himself to the demands of the priesthood and his willingness to, to, uh, you know, to, uh, to serve the people where he was. The third thing is that he did that all in the context of his own weakness, which we all do. Uh, he wasn't any good at languages, okay? He had the reputation of being not very smart and not very good at anything. But he also went to Guatemala, and if you've ever been in a different country working in a different language, you can't ever be the, the, the funny guy. You can't ever bring your natural abilities right to the front. You're always the foreigner. You're always the guy who's struggling with the language, unless you are absolutely one of these guys who are just incredibly good at this. But Stanley was always not that, always the foreigner. 
he lived his life, including the gift of his priesthood and his service and his pastoring and ultimately his life in a place that was foreign. His life was always marked out by his weakness. Um, he had to be willing to sacrifice that. Um, the, third, the fourth thing is that um, one of the things he had to accept was that he lived and pastored in a world and amidst expectations where he did not know what to do. There were no good answers. All of the options were bad. To stay in Oklahoma to protect himself meant to abandon his people. To go back meant to risk being murdered. To stay in the rectory meant that he could be taken, but not to stay in the rectory meant that he couldn't lead. To fight those who came for him even unto death, and yet, and yet he had to make all these decisions. And his leadership involved trying to find a way inside of all of this where he could responsibly and in a way that was realistic, lead the people. And you know, he was the pastor of all those who would turn in their fellow man for $10, as well as all of those who died heroically. He was the pastor of all of those who were involved in the communist insurgency, as well as those who were indifferent to it or who resisted it. He was the pastor of all of them. And he had to figure out a way to be a pastor to all of them. He didn't always know what to do. And the curious thing, the, the other Americans who worked in Central America, especially those who worked in Guatemala, were frustrated at Stan because Stan was never involved in any of their political discussions. They were convinced that the church needed to get on the side of the poor. It needed to focus its, its, uh, its ministry with regard to the, you know, the uh, theology of liberation, all the things that were, that were um, hot topics in the late 70s and early 80s, and Stan was completely outside of that. They gave him a hard time for not being political. And Stan is the one who's murdered. He didn't have the answers. He didn't have a vision of where we need to go ultimately other than I have to be the pastor and I have to take care of these people as best I can. I think it's a lesson for most pastors. The fifth thing is, this is the thing that, uh, that I, I appreciate the most. The super natural is built on the natural. Everything that is supernatural is on the natural. And so Stan's weaknesses were part of his life, like all of ours are. And Stan was enormously capable and enormously talented about a lot of things. And there were a lot of things he wasn't any good at. When Stan grew up, he was the kind of guy who could figure things out. He was a great mechanic, hard worker. He had that kind of quick mind, just like his father, who could figure things out. And that gave him a, a sense, it's hard to describe unless you're inside of this, a sense of mastery. There wasn't anything he couldn't take care of on the farm. And he knew that from the time he was 12 years old. 
I can take care of this. Now, there's lots of men in his generation, a lot of my relatives like him. And that leads to two things. One is this sense that I've got everything under control, and so I'm right where I need to be. Paradoxically, it also leads to the other thing, which is there isn't anything I can't handle. So, heck, I'm no good at languages. Why don't I go, why don't I go down to Guatemala and learn a couple? I've failed. Why don't I go back to the seminary? I get assigned from one parish to the other, and everybody thinks I'm a failure. Stan had this sense of, I can take care of what comes up. Supernature is built on nature. Now, the other part of that, of course, is that Stan inherited one attribute that is a, a mark of the Rother. This is especially true if you knew Stan's mother, I mean Stan's father, or my mother, or anybody else in the Rother family. He's just cussed stubborn. I'm telling you, I mean stubborn. Now Stan, for whom that was, that was a resource and also a difficulty. When Stan, when it came time for him to decide about whether to go back to Guatemala, he had to decide. Am I going back just because nobody's going to tell me what to do? even at the cost of my life. Nobody's going to push me around. Or is it because I need to serve these people? He had to struggle with that. What's the truest part of his life? But all this great strength that in that decision also becomes a weakness he had to struggle with. And the supernatural is built on the natural so that whatever he decided, it was something that he had to battle with even as he could depend on it. He was not to be intimidated. He may have looked uh, and sounded soft-spoken and responsive. Underneath, I can tell you, was steel. He, in his holiness, was, um, was solid. Now, one aspect of that also, again, there were a thousand things that he was good at and 10,000 things he wasn't good at, but those 11,000 things are the resource that God uses for holiness, which is true for all of us. God doesn't just use what we're good at. He also uses what we're not good at. God is just as able to use our sin as he is to use our virtue in achieving his will. Stan's weakness was what he had to endure to make his, in, in order for his holiness to come uh, to, be, to, to be obvious. Um, he found holiness in the mundane. He was the pastor, the sole pastor of 35,000 people. You can imagine what that looks like in a place like that. You know, mass and weddings and funerals and, and all of the things involved in being the 
to embody leadership in that parish as an American, as someone from the outside, as someone who had to learn the language and all of those things. Much of what he did was mind-numbing because of its routine and its demands. It's, besides all of the complications involved in how to lead, you can't lead if you don't do the work every day. And every day was the work of being the pastor there. Um, two more things. Um, the mission continued after Stan was killed. Um, he was killed in 1981. And uh, in 1983, we went down to Guatemala uh, for the second anniversary, priest council. And we recommended to the bishop that uh, he assign another, another uh, priest to Guatemala. Father Tom McSherry, a member of the priest council at the time, volunteered and went down. Now, Tom stayed 17 years as the missionary there, the only one of all of the priests from Oklahoma who served there who ever came back to minister again in the United States. He came back in 2001. And Tom is the most interesting person you will ever meet in your life, guaranteed. A little story. Um, well, I could tell you a hundred stories, but this story. Um, Tom was there a couple of years. There was another priest living with him at the time. When word came that in the evening that um, the army was going to come that night and take them and kill them. Now, there's no phone. Town's still under martial law. Where are you going to go? There's no place to go. There's nothing you can do. So Tom said, uh, there's a, when you spend the night convinced that you'll never open your eyes again to see the sunrise, it clarifies your thinking a great deal. He said, I just had one regret. They can't, they, they, when they, if they came and took us, we'd all be known as Stan Rother and Companions. <laughs> In this whole story, of Stan Rother's sanctity, I never want anybody to forget that the guy who took his place, when Stan went down, the biggest overt threat was bad water and uh, uh, fleas. The man who took his place had to pass by the room where his predecessor was shot through the head by unknown assailants. Tom went and Tom stayed 17 years of faithful service. And the mission came to its fullest flower after Stan died. So I think we're all missionaries. Tom was an extraordinary character, but he embodied the character of what it means to be um, faithful, just as much as Stan. I feel closer to Stan in my priesthood then, or as I said before once, uh, I feel closer to Stan because of the father in my title than the Rother in his name. Because we're more connected in the priestly life than we were by the fact that he was one of my relatives. And besides, I got like a thousand of those. <laughs> I'm not joking. Uh, and finally, 
well, sort of finally. On the 30th anniversary in 1980, in uh, 2011, we were there in Santiago for the uh, 30th anniversary mass. And we hear these helicopters overhead during, as mass started. Now when the army occupied the village, by then they were gone. When the army occupied the village, hearing the sound of helicopters could be a terrifying sound. Soldiers used to walk through the village with their, with their, you know, their rifles unslung. As you celebrated mass behind the altar, they would come into the back of the church and stand there with their guns at the ready. Now all they wanted to do was intimidate you, but they intimidated me. Uh, and so as I heard these helicopters overhead, a kind of shiver went through my back. All I'd ever done was visit there. But to see the soldiers walk around all the times I'd been there, to listen to Tom and to talk about his experience and to know about Stan. But about communion time, inside the church walks a group of Americans, a couple of very well-dressed people and a couple of guys who look like bodyguards. And after communion, they get up and they're introduced, the American ambassador to Guatemala. So he gets up after communion and he apologizes for being late. He had gotten held up by his previous engagement. And so he gets up and he explains in Spanish, you know, it's Father Rother's um, sacrifice was something that we all are grateful for. and We're all glad that, uh, that the church can gather and celebrate this. And then he had learned enough tsutuhil, again, which is spoken by just 30,000 people in the world. And he stood up in front of the church and he said in tsutuhil, he said, you tell me, is Stanley Rother dead or is he alive? And the whole church shouted, alive, alive. A third of the, no, two-thirds of the people there could not have known Stan. They were too young. But everyone shouted, alive, alive. That's probably the greatest uh, lesson, I think, that we learn from Stan's life and death and witness. Um, his witness isn't dead, it's alive. His example isn't dead, it's alive. His decision to be a priest, to serve in this self-giving, his decision as a consequence of his baptism to displace himself and to make Christ present to the world isn't dead, it's alive. And Stan, the man, the person, isn't dead, but is alive. That's what, that's what his life is and is for. And finally, 400 years, there had been no vocations from Santiago Atitlan, not one. Of course, for 200 years, it was against the law for anybody with Indian blood ever to go to the seminary. Part of the reason. After Stan's death, there were, uh, what are there now, 11, 12 priests from Santiago with seven more in the seminary. A flowering of vocations. S Tom McSherry left in 2001, replaced by a native Guatemalan priest. The pastor now is the first native-speaking Tsutuhil 
to be pastor ever in the history of the church there. Sacrificial witness makes a difference. In fact, I was on the seminary board for 14 years. Beginning in the middle 1980s, men started coming into the diocese, into the seminary for us. Um, when I went, in, I went to the seminary in 1975, there were 14 of us. Uh, by 1987 or 88, we had 54 guys in the seminary. 54. And in the late 1980s, we began ordaining classes that were huge. In fact, if you added Oklahoma City and Tulsa together, one state, as in the 1950s, we had ordination classes like the ordination classes following the Second World War. Huge numbers of guys. I was on the seminary board. Not one of them walked in and said, I'm here because of Stan Rother's example. But Stan Rother was murdered, and 10 years later, we ordained more guys in three years than we had in the 21 years put together before that. In fact, we were sitting at a seminary board meeting one time, and the bishop said, if it just takes the death of one priest, And he said, it would be better if I could choose the priest. <laughs> the day of the beatification in, uh, in September, what was it, September the 23rd, was absolutely sublime. Um, you can look it up on YouTube, uh, beatification of Stan Rother. Choose the one from EWTN. Uh, oddly enough, if you click on that, it starts in the middle of some program that they have. So click to about the 15-minute point, and you get the beginning of the beatification. Uh, we had to turn away 10,000 people. There wasn't enough room on the inside of the uh, civics, of the, the, uh, the gathering place that we had. It, it only accommodated 17,000. Turn away 10,000 people. It was absolutely amazing. I think just a hint of... Um, what his life meant. Of course, not everybody thought Stan was particularly saintly, especially the people who knew him. Uh, I had an uncle who thought that it was one more example of what a dullard and a zero this guy was. Safe in Oklahoma, goes back to Santiago and gets murdered. I mean, what a, what a dummy. And he said it to everybody. The other Rother characteristic, there are no hidden thoughts. They'll tell you no matter what, no matter how cringeworthy their opinion. My uncle thought he was, was stupid, was his uh, favorite description of Stan. Always stupid. So, cousin of mine, uh, Sandra Rother, uh, was uh, living in an apartment in Yukon, just a little west of uh, Oklahoma City. Her boyfriend comes by and uh, uh, on his way to work, and, uh, you know, says hello to his girlfriend, goes down to get in his pickup, leaves his keys on the coffee table, goes up and to get his keys, and she's collapsed on the floor. She's 22. Call an ambulance. They take her to the hospital. Her parents rush in, and the doctors come out and say, you know, fixed and dilated pupils. I mean, I mean big, she had a burst aneurysm in her brain. I mean, there's no hope here. Talking about 
organ donation. So the parents get on the phone and they call their pastor, who is Sam Levin in Okarchi. And Sam says, go to the church, pray for the intercession of Father Rotha. So they do. Nine weeks later, Sandra walks out of the hospital. Now, the skill of surgeons, the knowledge of doctors, the care of nurses, the, the uh, miracle of pharmacology, all of that's part of that. Intercession of Stanley Rother is part of that, too. Now, Sandra is the daughter of my uncle who thought Stan was such a zero. He doesn't say that anymore. So you see, there's already been two miracles. One is Sandra. The other is that an adult Rother male changed his mind. That's never happened before. It's never happened ever. Uh, so uh, that, that's, I mean, a, a person rising from the dead wouldn't be as striking as that, having a Rother change his mind. So. Uh, it's an amazing story. I, I like to tell it. Um, I'm honored that Stan is my cousin. And uh, I am honored that I'm a, a, uh, a priest of the Archdiocese of Oklahoma City. Um, when I was at my ordination, Stan was there. And, you know, the priests prostrate in front of the altar for the ordination. And then we invoke the saints. So we pray the litany of the saints. So at every other priest's ordination, we pray to the saints. At my ordination, we prayed with the saint. But you know what? At least in my diocese, I think that's probably always been true. The priests uh, in my diocese, uh, lots of them, have been men of extraordinary virtue and amazing sacrifice and incredible ability. I wouldn't be surprised if at every ordination in my diocese we haven't at least most times prayed with saints, not just to them. I wouldn't be surprised if that weren't the case here. And in just about every diocese that there is. I think that marks the priesthood and the people a lot. We pray with the saints, not just to the saints. Any questions? Shameless plug. Right at the back, there's a, I have a little CD for anybody who wants it. I have 49, 48 copies. Uh, it's called uh, A Last Look in the Light, and it's just a narration of Stan's last trip home to Oklahoma. So uh, listen to that if you'd like. Thank you, Father Wolf.